Okay, so <laughs> what's the difference? Um, so you can avoid war with the pop stars, or uh, you know, but but ugh. for the Mundangerous Standard Orbit in New York City. I'm your host, Shane. And I'm your host, Yishin. And welcome to episode 236 of Total Party Thrill, a podcast for game masters and players where we discuss our campaigns in order to inspire yours. In this episode, we're continuing our series on campaign settings that you might want to play in, and we're talking about the Star Trek universe. But first, the party reconnects with an old friend in the Gates of Morning campaign. And later, section 31 goes deep, deep undercover in the Character Creation Forge. Total Party Thrill is brought to you this week by Cobalt Press. Tome of Beasts 2 is now on Kickstarter. Does that sound familiar to you? It's because the original Tome of Beasts was a smash hit, and now Cobalt Press is wrangling a new horde of wildly original, often lethal, and highly entertaining 5e-compatible monsters to challenge new players and veterans alike. Uh, Often lethal? Um... I'm sure they are. Challenge accepted. (laughs) Not conducive to party cohesion, but sure. I can 100% this. <laughs> so, Tome of Beast 2 will bring 400 new monsters to 5th edition, from Angelic Enforcers, Sasquatch and Shriek Bats, to Psychic Vampires, Zombie Dragons, and so much more. That is a hell of a mis- mishmash, and I like it a lot. So, Tome of Beast 2 Kickstarter backers at the $25 level and up can also submit original monster designs for possible publication. And in addition to the Tome of Beasts 2 hardcover volume and PDFs, this Kickstarter will fund the creation of monster pawns, virtual tabletop versions, monster lairs with beautiful maps, and much more. You know, it's it's all about the uh, extra swag. It's all those add-ons, baby. The tactile sensation of even digital things. Honestly, Uh, I still get that same little rush. (laughs) I I just need I need ninety PDFs in my drive-thru, please. Uh, You're absolutely not wrong about that. All right, so that sounds interesting. You can check out more at coboltpress.com and tell them DSPN sent you. Also, a little more Kickstarter news. We are just a few days away, nine days away, from the Descent into Midnight Kickstarter on February 15th, 2020. Yeah, this is a game created by our friends Rich Howard, Taylor Labresh, and Richard Kreutz-Landry uh, about um, whatever you want it to be. <laughs> Yeah, um, it's a PBT engine game where characters are inhabitants of an ocean planet, but like the specifics of the ocean planet, the species that are involved, what the society looks like, that is all up to the players, and you come up with it on the spot in the first session. Yeah, they've been releasing all the design stuff for this. It looks gorgeous. Uh, we were, um, I guess, not even early playtesters. Like We playtested it probably two years ago, three mm-hmm. years ago. And uh, it was already uh, well underway. Um, so it is finally coming to print, and that is, uh, that's that's going to be awesome. I mean, that Kickstarter is going to fund in no time, but um, I, I'm definitely going to get myself a copy. Yeah, um, it is definitely a, a labor of love. You can see all of the attention that's gone into it. Uh, and, of course, like all of these uh, people involved have some pretty impressive design chops as well. Uh, I am tangentially related on occasion, I will copy edit stuff for friends, and so I will be doing that. 
Um, so if there are any mistakes, uh, not in the gameplay, but in the uh, layout or, or typos, that's my fault. That's all. I, I cannot wait to get a copy of this game and then find the <laughs> editing mistake that you made and lord it over you for all eternity. I went with the British localization. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> that's not MLA, sir. So I, I like this game a lot because you could, for example, be, I don't know, like a collection of telepathic bioluminescent phytoplankton like that's your individual character and then like you know the person sitting next to you can be a leviathan that has a city on its back it's it's fine it makes sense and it works i played a remora who was a coach oh you totally did yeah right i just attached to things that were very that that needed help doing their jobs and i psychically coached them to be better is this because uh we're still trying to figure out a way in 5e to be the familiar and not the wizard Mm -hmm. yep (laughs) Well, it worked great in Descent into Midnight. Exactly. So if that sounds interesting, check it out at DescentIntoMidnight.com, and there is also a link right up at the top to the Kickstarter. So, Ishan, where are we in the Gates of Morning campaign? So the Gates of Morning campaign is our fifth edition D&D game set in Eberron, a sequel of sorts to the original Morning Glory campaign. And in central Karnath, in the insular city of Vedekir, the party is chasing a killer. Yeah, so we got a letter asking for help, um, and each of us journeyed in, from our own homes to Vedakir. And uh, what, multiple days on the lightning rail, uh, got some, some nice uh, luxury, you know, like not first class tickets, but like, you know, economy comfort tickets from, uh, from Colonel Ephraim. Right, yeah, you had sleeper cars and meals, so you basically just didn't need to worry about that stuff. Unfortunately, at night... About half the the party, who are all sort of coming in separately, Bramble, the Shifter, Zan, uh, the Half-Elf Warlock, and Lenore, um, the Inquisitor from House Thrash, have terrible, bloody dreams where they feel like they're being stabbed by some sort of unknown assailant. But finally, on the 11th of Ron, as, uh, as requested, everyone gets to Vedakir and meets at the Marrow's Mead, a tidy little inn that bears a House Galanda certification, which is, I don't know, sort of like uh, the Days Inn seal of approval, I guess. Mm -hmm. It means you'll get a minimum of service and probably some kind of safety. Yep. So we enter and are greeted by the innkeeper, Thule, who is happy to see foreigners and, and our foreign money stimulating the economy. Yeah, for some reason, Karnath, like central cold Karnath, doesn't get a whole lot of tourism. I don't know. Yeah, weird. So the party asks about Ephraim, and Thule says that, yeah, the colonel's been staying here at the inn for about a month, but he hasn't seen him in a day or two. And also, weirdly, coincidentally, and I'm sure this has nothing to do with anything, a local Carnathian specter came looking for Ephraim just the previous day. So we let a room upstairs. Uh, as we are, we have now kind of all identified each other. You know, like everybody recognizes, oh, yeah, yeah, we died together. You know, it's cool. Um, and then, you know. Right, you take- compare notes. Oh, you got a letter. Wait, I got a letter. Wait, we got the same letter. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. Haven't seen you in a while. Um, but yeah, so we, we leave our stuff in a room upstairs and then head to the constabulary. So there, you know, the local, basically, uh, police station, they find Carnathian enforcers who kind of look down their noses at, at these foreigners who are here, who speak strangely. And remember, this is two years after the war when basically every nation was fighting every other nation and none of you are Carnathi. So they figure there's an excellent chance that, uh, you were on opposite sides of the war and, Feelings are still a little raw. 
They meet up with Inspector Sigor, who's a, a beak-nosed man with a severe personality. It turns out he was the one who went to the inn to look for Ephraim. So when he finds out that we fought in the war with Ephraim, he leads us downstairs to the morgue. Oh, that's great. Yep. And there's Ephraim's body laid out on the table, very, very dead. Turns out Ephraim had been discovered in an alley behind a local sanitarium just the day before. Of course, being an inspector, Sigor then questions the party about their whereabouts at the time of the murder. But he doesn't really seem to suspect them. He just seems to be like checking them off the list because that's what's required by the inspection. Yeah. So the death is strange, but he's also like, it's not really like, you know, what's one dead on Darien? You know, like he's an old soldier. He died. Like, who cares? You know, the war is still fresh. Yeah, uh, you were on the opposite side. I'm not shedding any tears over this. I'm going to do my job and try to figure out who, like, murdered you in my town. But, you know, tough luck. Yeah, call me when a Carnathy dies. (laughs) He does, however, point to the markings on Ephraim's leg, which the party can see for the first time because he's... um, An autopsy hasn't been performed, but he's basically laid out, like, mostly undressed. So they can see his bare leg, and there is a dragon mark. Uh, he also seems a little confused and maybe maybe a little snooty about the fact that they don't seem to realize that his name actually wasn't Darian Ephraim, but Ephraim Dorian of the House of Passage, uh, House Orion. And of course, uh, upon closer examination, the dragon mark certainly appears to be one that belongs to House Orion. So this begs two questions. First of all, how big of a discount did he get on the lightning rail? And second of all... How did an Orion Scion join the war effort uh, on the side of Ondaire, uh, which is uh, definitely going to be an infringement of the Korth Edicts? And we'll find out more next week. So this week, we are talking about my absolute favorite sci-fi universe, Star Wars. That is right. Didn't we already do that? Didn't we cover that already? Yes. Okay, we're just doing it again. (laughs) It's a redux. (laughs) Here we are. All right, so this time we're talking about Star Trek. I'm sorry. It's it's fine. I know you're not actually sorry. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> what is Star Trek, Yushin? Well, Picard is back. Uh, it's it's back in the news. We're getting more series. The purpose of us covering these campaign settings, of course, is to sort of uh, give you a quick rundown so that your uh, group can decide if this is something that you actually uh, want to play a game in. So the elevator pitch for Star Trek is... You can play a game in a high-tech future where people have taken to the stars and they're seeking to find and understand not only new civilizations, but unexplored frontiers, scientific phenomena, and ultimately their own humanity. To mate with them. Also, yes, that's definitely true. That's That's Shatner's goal, right? Yeah, but I mean, you know, he led the way. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So Star Trek is like is the other space franchise, right? Uh, and it's generally brighter and less gritty than Star Wars tends to be. Yeah, it's got all the uh, strange-looking aliens, but the organizations and the motivations that it deals with are more familiar. Like, it's just a few hundred years in the future of real Earth. So it's kind of a natural outflowing of here as opposed to this sort of made-up fantastical realm of Star Wars. Right. So let's uh, go through a little history. Of course, it began in 1966 with Gene Roddenberry's groundbreaking TV series that was basically used as a platform to examine real life issues like racism, you know, 
predestination and the Cold War through the lens of science fiction. And this is basically what you can end up doing in Star Trek games. Of course, the series was canceled after only three seasons, but it developed a huge cult following. Yeah, the cast returned for an animated series, and the classic movies of the 1980s expanded the Star Star Trek universe further and revisited some favorite characters. Uh, when you edit this one, please just leave every time you say Star what and then Trek, just leave it in. Leave it in. I, oh, I am. <laughs> I'm not even taking that note out. <laughs> and just like uh, Star Wars, Star Trek novels hit shelves almost immediately, like while the original series was actually still on the air. And then, of course, this is probably the touchstone for most of our listeners. In 1987, the timeline was advanced about 80 years to focus on a new generation of Starfleet officers in Star Trek The Next Generation. So this was the even more idealistic Federation of Planets who faced galactic existential threats. Yeah, this is, you know, Picard and, and Data and Jordy of the Forge and there's a Klingon on the, the bridge and, you know, we never shoot first and sometimes episodes are and just a courtroom scene. You know, and there's like the Borg and stuff, right? Yes, there's definitely the see, see, you know, and love this. Uh-huh. <laughs> so its success kicked off the heyday of Star Trek television series. It was followed by Deep Space Nine, which really pioneered serialized storytelling on television. It had uh, this wartime focus um, that it had an overarching storyline that uh, lasted through multiple seasons. It even had the, you know, for those days, it was an amazing thing where there were 10 episodes in a row that were just one story arc. Mm-hmm. And it introduced a lot more shades of gray into the traditional Star Trek narrative. Not everything was bright and shiny. Then Voyager explored a previously undeveloped quadrant of the galaxy. And in 2001, the prequel series Enterprise dealt with the early days of human space exploration. That was Scott Bakula. That was Scott Bakula as George W. Bush in space. it was 2001 (laughs) so these days discovery uh, the episode discovery re-examines the time of the original series and the new series picard finally advances the story beyond the end of voyager Uh, and then of course a new trilogy of movies uh, recasts the originals and takes place in an alternate timeline did you see the jj abrams star trek movies i saw the jj abrams star trek I was kind of into it, actually. That's all I know about Star Trek. Oh, that's interesting. Okay, okay. Yeah, and then I tried to watch the second one on a plane, and it was painful, so I stopped. With uh, ben- Benelict's mumber stitches? Bumble snutch, yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm a giant Star Trek fan. I didn't love that movie. Anyway, anyway. <laughs> all right, so a setting overview. In 2063, as Earth is recovering from World War III, Zephram Cochran discovers faster-than-light travel. The warp signature of a spaceship attracts aliens. But this is the main difference from Star Trek and most like pulp sci-fi from the 1940s and 50s. The Vulcans, the aliens who show up, are friendly. They share their technology and this ushers in a golden era for humanity. Fast forward 50 years, Earth is post-scarcity. It's got a unified (laughs) world government. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Hunger, war, and disease are essentially wiped out. And then that is the platform for going out to the stars and looking for other civilizations and then dealing with the same issues, but in space rather than Earth. Right. So then over the next 200 years, humans are the impetus for the formation of the Federation of Planets, which is basically the UN in space. But effective. Oh, uh, hundreds of planets and species join um, living like idyllic lives of art and science and revelry. 
That sounds like a really boring setting for an RPG because nothing happens. Mm-hmm. Fortunately, yeah, <laughs> how, how can we uh, how can we term this uh, happy punk? <laughs> so fortunately, on the frontier of known space, there is Starfleet, a, the quasi military arm of the Federation, which is exploring the galaxy, charting unknown phenomenon, making first contact with new species, and of course, sometimes fighting the wars that are keeping everyone in the heart of the Federation safe and secure. So while the area around Earth is peaceful, territory controlled by the Klingon Empire and the Romulan Star Empire border the Federation, and the three are locked in a Cold War that always threatens to break out into actual war. And then by the time of the Next Generation series, the Federation and the Klingons have become allies, although the Romulans are still a big problem. And together they face greater threats, like you mentioned, the all-consuming Borg, who are basically Tyranids before Tyranids. Mm -hmm. Well... Hold on. Tyranids after Tyranids? <laughs> yeah, maybe after Tyranids. When did Tyranids. Tyranids come out? I don't know. <laughs> I think the uh, Space Hulk's like 81. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Uh, and then also the Dominion, who are basically fascist bioengineers who are, well, I mean, they call themselves the Dominion, right? They're, they're trying yeah. to take over the galaxy. They put that one right on the label. Yeah. But always through some combination of ethical leadership and scientific technobabble, the Federation pulls through and is victorious. Okay, so what are some of the themes of Star Trek? Yeah, I think this is probably the most important thing to consider when you're playing a Star Trek game is honestly a little bit like Star Wars because this takes place across an entire galaxy. You have thousands and thousands of different planets that stories could be taking place on, which means you can do any kind of story you want, right? Like right. You, can, you can do a Western, you can do like bureaucratic intrigue or whatever, but it is the theme of that story rather than the genre that is going to determine the, the gameplay and, you know, how much fun your group actually has. So I think the first one, the most important one is probably characters in Star Trek have become more than people thought that we could become. They are, by and large, good people who are sometimes faced with difficult choices. But remember, they've been born into this society where all of their base needs have been met from the moment that they have been born. They've literally never been hungry their entire lives. Uh, so they can pursue anything that interests them, which means that if they're out here on the, the border fighting Klingons, it's because they decided that they didn't want to just stay home and paint or like be a farmer because there are lots of people who do that and have good lives. Right. Uh, there's no money. Most injuries can be healed almost instantly. Cancer is not a thing. Um, but you get into the situation where, so you have these massive starships, right? And you're probably playing bridge crew. The weaponry on a single starship can wipe out all life on an entire planet easily. Yeah, it's just that that doesn't happen. Right. Because characters are supposed to be devoted to higher ideals. Like, the Starfleet is quasi-military. Like, it has a chain of command and designations and, like, all of those trappings, but its function is actually scientific and diplomatic, right? So weapons are always sort of your last option, and, and certainly, like, exterminatus is your absolute final option, and perhaps not even a real option. Yeah, not really for Starfleet, right? Like, the Klingons have done it before. But there wasn't even any, like, sapient life on that planet. I think it was deer, mostly. They had it coming. Well, I mean, obviously. <laughs> Flashing those white tails. Yeah, the, the purpose here, right? The goal of the party isn't to conquer. 
it it's to actually explore and discover like destroying all life in this planet doesn't doesn't serve uh, the purpose that you're actually trying to accomplish right so i think a thing that happens is pcs like players who try to apply 21st century morality or who try to like min max the abilities that you're presented with in game even if you're like a low fleet uh, even if you're like a low level starfleet ensign uh, with all of your like advanced technology that I can easily break a game. Like you can show up with like your teleporters and your disintegration phasers and, and you know, your ship with shields and no, like even 21st century uh, civilization is going to be able to stand up to you. Like the murder hobo mindset doesn't work because it is so easily exploitable unless you are beholden to higher ideals. Right. So another theme is that, uh, humanity has not changed as much as we would have hoped. Uh, there is no racism between humans, but speciesism is still prevalent. Yeah, you know, there's plenty of food and room on Earth itself and the core worlds of the Federation, but out on the frontier, you have colonists who are scrambling for resources and they might face like terrible spacefaring marauders or, you know, again, those fascist dictatorships that are coming to take over their entire planet. Yeah, and, and through those lenses, like, this is an opportunity to address real issues, right? Like to, to mirror those, um, the issues we face in the real world kind of, you know, on the fringes of an idyllic world. Yeah. I think, I mean, it was one of the original reasons that Star Trek was covering these on TV in the sixties in the first place. But I think we've talked before about like, it can be very problematic or verge on the problematic. If you've got a bunch of players who are basically Caucasian and are like, okay, we want to play a Cowboys and Indians game. And you know, the Indians are not necessarily the bad guys, but how do you go about telling a story like that? Taking the concept of people who are being forced out by other people for whatever reason and placing it in basically space with aliens allows you to sort of like take a step back and not have it be quite so personal. And like, you know, you don't want to make it an analog where these, these are the native Americans, which a couple of Star Trek episodes actually, actually did like yeah. literally native Americans. <laughs> I mean, it's the show, the show wasn't, it wasn't perfect. <laughs> nope. Nope. Well, certainly, certainly was not. Uh, but yeah, it, it works really well as an analogy for the kinds of issues that people are dealing with in real life and that you can play out in a cathartic and ideally meaningful kind of way. So then another theme is that winning isn't worth it if it costs you your soul, right? There, like, like we talked about higher ideals. Um, that means that Starfleet officers are expected to make the ultimate sacrifice to uphold their values. They, they don't compromise on that. If everyone on the ship has to die so that a pre-warp civilization isn't contaminated by the knowledge of extraterrestrials, well, they should be prepared for that. Yep, that's why you're out here. You took an oath. You know, you don't kill the prisoner to save your own life. Like, you die with the prisoner. That, that's what is expected of you. Uh, however, <laughs> this, isn't, this isn't just like a, a game of, you know, making your grand last stand. The thing about Star Trek is there's almost always some way to avoid this heroic death, some way to like have your cake and eat it too, right? You're present, presented with this moral dilemma, but through wit or not even usually luck, but like daring uh, or even diplomacy, you figure out a way to thread the needle, right? Federation ethics are placing this backstop on all of the massive power at your disposal, right? So 
you're in a diplomatic meeting um, with like a, another species who's who basically wants to fight, right? You're not allowed to just shoot your way out of this meeting, even though you will win. You know, like you you have phasers and and a spaceship in orbit, and like they can't stand up to you, but you are still beholden to the uh, laws of the civilization that you are representing, and your protection isn't that you can shoot faster or harder than these other aliens. It is that you can speak to them and like approach them with your sort of arms up in a show of friendship and peace and really hope that they don't shoot you or at least hope that they shoot the red shirt first. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, that's, (laughs) are we going to get to that? (laughs) Yes. There's nothing like, like a red shirt and a Wilhelm scream. (laughs) I mean, don't play the red shirt, right? <laughs> or uh, uh, it's a it's a nice band of blades type thing. Oh, the ensigns! Oh yeah, man, exactly. they they really took it for the team. <laughs> poor rookies. <laughs> um, speaking of, Utopia has a dark underbelly. <laughs> not just the the volume of red shirts, but also just like not everyone in this society is good. Right, like the comforts of civilization keep most people in check, but th- there are people on the margins, of course, that will take advantage of it. Yeah, or people in the core who want to be bad and can't do it there, and so they move to the margins. Yeah, they just want to do hood rat stuff with their friends. Yeah, come on, come on. Like it's actually pretty easy for a rogue officer to set themselves up on a you know a medieval world and just claim to be a god. That is a storyline that that has happened, and you know now <laughs> Starfleet has to be like. All right, come with us. Nope, nope, little godling. That's not who you are, and that's not who we are. And now we have to like decontaminate. Ugh. Right. And then, of course, like like any empire, the merchants and information brokers, of course, make a killing moving between different galactic powers. At the same time, there is also a secret organization inside Starfleet that does the dirty jobs that the Federation won't admit to. So this is sort of a, a counterpoint to winning isn't worth it if it costs your soul. You have these... Um, these like front and center characters who represent the Federation publicly. And, you know, they insist that we uphold these ideals, ideals no matter the cost. But then there are others quietly who, you know, these like main characters probably don't even know exist, uh, who are doing the underhanded dirty work, greasing the wheels that keep any society actually functioning. So this is section 31, right? Like most officers don't know they exist, but they're there to carry out political assassinations, to uh, conduct banned scientific research or genetic experimentation, you know, all in the name of keeping everybody safe. And the conflict comes from dealing with section 31 because you have these people who are willing to do anything in order to protect the federation the question ultimately is are the things they are doing necessary do they need to be doing these things in order to actually protect the safety of most people in the federation there is an argument to be had there and it's a good opportunity to introduce moral relativism and some grayness into an otherwise like bright and shiny universe Of course, even within Starfleet, admirals are notoriously corrupt and self-serving. You don't amass that much power without being somewhat corrupt and very self-serving. 
And you can't have a uh, main cast who people really like without having some sort of antagonist that they can deal with. And admirals are an easy foil. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's nothing that, that the working man relates to more than a bad boss. Yeah. <laughs> so Section 31 and these admirals usually serve as antagonists to the party. But you can get into a situation where they can be uncomfortable allies, where you might you might have a captain who is unwilling to do the dirty work of Section 31. I will not you know, assassinate this diplomat, even though that would make the war effort go more easily, but they might maybe turn a blind eye if Section 31 does it and they find out after the fact. And in general, they're difficult to oppose because they're, you know, either hidden or in the case of these admirals, they're actually in charge and you're like, ah, do I disobey an order? How much can I disobey an order? Or when I disobey an order, how do I still fix the problem before I get thrown in the brig? And then Another big theme of Star Trek that I think is part of why it appeals so much to nerds is that the mind always wins out against strength and violence. Yeah, and that is either like your smarts or or your willpower, you know, your willingness to say, I'm going to figure out a solution to this problem or I will not cross a particular boundary no matter what. So, you know, most problems can be solved with the right application of either science or diplomacy or some some combination. Mm hmm. Uh, in general, Starfleet never fires first. They're never the aggressor. Of course, this is different when you're dealing with Section 31. Yeah, they might be forced into combat, but will always endeavor to use the least amount necessary, um, usually because they're overmatching their opponents, right? Like it's weaker opponents that are desperately attacking them rather than strong opponents that really require a full defense. Yeah, and I think this is something to keep in mind when you're playing a Star Trek game is that in most RPGs, you are facing, you know, overwhelming odds or a big challenge and and you're, you know, the party is going to rally and finally take down like an ogre or a dragon or whatever. But here you are often the big dog in the room and the the goal or the challenge is not to destroy them with your phasers because you could do that instantly and easily. The goal is to convince them that you are friendly and want to help them. Even even though they are grumpy jerks. Mm -hmm. So even, even when you do face stronger enemies, they can de be defeated with science or diplomacy typically, right? Like there's no way to blast your way through 10,000 Dominion ships or even a single Borg cube. They have to be handled with Mm, heist mechanics basically yeah <laughs> infiltration <laughs> subterfuge a little uh generous application of techno babble right like how many star trek episodes were okay we're facing a board cube um it's definitely going to murder us and we don't know what to do i know why don't five people transport onto it and then take it out from the inside great yeah. done <laughs> <laughs> uh, even in, in like the classic uh episode arena captain kirk defeats a like massive reptilian gorn not by like wrestling it to the ground but with his with his wits he fools it and then ultimately he actually wins the battle by showing mercy and not striking the killing blow he has defeated it he can bash its head in with a rock and he decides that he will not do that because one it's already been defeated but two he thinks it was acting in self-defense and that ultimately is how he like proves that you know humanity has actually made some advances mm-hmm and of course, all of this is very important, especially when you are facing the bevy of nigh omnipotent adversaries that seem to pop up in the Star Trek galaxy, uh, Q and all kinds of weird aliens who can control reality with their thoughts. Like, There's 
there's no way to defeat someone with force of arms uh, when they can change the gravitational constant of the universe by snapping their fingers. You have to parlay. <laughs> oh. Yeah. <laughs> how, how quaint that you have to snap. Yeah, I know. You didn't take subtle spell? <laughs> <laughs> All right. So if I want to play in a Star Trek game, how do I do that? I think you usually follow the TV series or the movies. Tell the stories of the way they do them. And the first most obvious one is like have it be episodic. Just play through a single episode of the story that you're telling at a time. It might It's probably a contained story that may or may not connect to other sessions that you're playing or other short arcs. Yeah, begin in Medius Res, uh, like during the mission or at a mission briefing, and then you know, you have a simple task that quickly becomes more complicated than it was originally advertised. Yeah. And, you know, everything can go awry in a different way. So it's fine if you have multiple missions that in a row that end up sort of starting out the same way. But some pretty obvious ones are, you know, an escort mission. Um, You've got to keep this diplomat safe while they go to a dangerous place. Or you need to show up to a dangerous place and diffuse the tensions between two parties and make sure that they don't blow themselves up or ideally you. Yeah, you might have to investigate a strange phenomena or uh, conduct a rescue mission for somebody else who is investigating a strange phenomena. (laughs) Uh, And all of these are often or can be solved basically with the trope of saving people with science, right? You show up, your rescue mission uh, might be that, you know, there's too much volcanic activity on a planet. Maybe they've, oh, I don't know, destroyed their environment with some sort of, I don't know, fuel that they got from underground somehow uh-huh. yep. <laughs> and <laughs> maybe you can just solve that maybe you have to evacuate them but there's probably some sort of like sciencey thing that you're going to need to do in order to make it happen and then of course there's always just like the black ops infiltration mission right and that can be hey we're we're the gray guard section 31 and we're doing a thing and we're keeping it hush hush but also sometimes people who are on the up and up are called in to do quieter missions because they have these particular skills so then you want to pose within these episodes an ethical dilemma right like do you complete the mission at hand or do you save your friends do you avoid the war with the kardashians is that really what they're called (laughs) kardashians but i mean they're they're basically the same (laughs) (laughs) they're greedy and reptilian (laughs) okay so what's the difference Um, so you can avoid war with the pop stars or uh you know the locals will have to leave their homes right they'll have to cede the territory to the cardassians and and remember like remember what happens in episodes think about how is it that the party can have their cake and eat it too they're presented with this dilemma right complete the mission or save their friends in almost every star trek game or you know if people are playing a game and they want it to be like star trek quote-unquote correct answer is save your friends of course you save your friends you know like starfleet is not an organization where you complete the mission at all costs you do the right thing but the challenge is ultimately saving your friends and figuring out a way to still complete the mission right and then of course like the the hallmark or the keystone of these uh episodic structures is you want to have a b plot that is floating along in the background that can you know be advanced either in the first few minutes or the last few minutes of the episode yeah other smaller npcs who are you know doing some interesting things or the larger overarching plot that's happening in the background yeah 
this is where you get like the recurring npc who you know helps you on this one mission and then needs to be rescued three missions later uh why are we friends with them again exactly (laughs) for continuity of set (laughs) or at least costume they have great rates (laughs) right they're the only one that fits into the prosthetics we had a limited number of foreheads we're gonna recycle this one All right. The sort of opposite way to do this is tell a serialized story. So you're sort of flipping um, the episodic A and B plots, right? There's one overarching storyline. This is more akin to the traditional D&D campaign. You know, we're fighting the war with the Dominion. We are making a 70-year journey across the Delta Quadrant to get home. So that means that you have a a sort of a long-term goal, right? Win the war, uh, cross Delta Quadrant. But you then have like sort of your A plot in each episode is always going to be some way of advancing towards that goal. Securing a beachhead on an asteroid or establishing a science outpost are the mission that you need to do today to help with that war effort. Right. So unlike episodic where, you know, you are given a mission and here's a task you must accomplish. Why? Well, because that's the thing that's happening today. With this, it's more like you could actually abandon these missions. Maybe the beachhead doesn't become important in the process of trying to do it or the science outpost is destroyed or whatever, um, it it doesn't ruin the continuity because everything you were doing is still moving toward the much, much larger goal. So then it wouldn't be Star Trek without a little bit of space battle. Yep, this is ship-to-ship combat and you probably have the PCs at different stations, um, engine room, con, uh, command, yeah, you know, man your battle stations, et cetera, et cetera. There might be an away team who's infiltrating or carry out, carrying out a separate, maybe even more important mission. Maybe they're on the board cube and you're just stalling for time and trying not to get blowed up. Yep. Uh, you got to think about what is that goal of this of this battle? It's rarely to simply out and out destroy the enemy. Although that might happen more at the end of an arc. Remember that in Star Trek, there there should be moral weight to killing it is a a last resort and the characters should should feel it sometimes it might even be accidental right they didn't intend to destroy the enemy and the enemy's hubris is what ultimately destroys them right they overloaded their engines by accident yeah and then think about who's dying you know even if even on ship to ship combat uh, (laughs) for some reason panels explode a lot uh-huh <laughs> i mean obviously because circuits get overloaded and then the panels pop off everyone knows this right and nobody has circuit breakers why would anyone have invented that <laughs> exactly <laughs> they, they should build all the armor out of grav plating because that never seems to fail exactly <laughs> but it's rarely the bridge officers who are going to be dying right that is ensuring continuity of the story but think about the young ensigns the bright-eyed ensigns who just got out of the academy or of course all of those security personnel. Yeah. <laughs> those freshly pressed red shirts. Yeah. Nurses also, I think, die a lot. Because, uh, you know, somebody you're trying to help decides to start murdering doctors. Ah. Uh, there is, of course, also a strong Star Trek tradition of the bottle episode. Uh, so this is where you have an episode or a session almost entirely in like a single room or a single confined space. There's probably no combat. And you're presented with an ethical dilemma. You know, you're in a room, you've been kidnapped. There's only enough air to last for three people, but there are four of you here in this room. And uh, the Nausicaan over there definitely wants to kill the Betazoid so that there's more air. Uh Uh-huh. 
Uh, it could also be like a bureaucratic issue, right? So uh, a trial of, of an innocent or even like, you know, an investigation. Mm-hmm. And this can involve verbal maneuvering, but it's probably more like a puzzle. So what particular legal statute can you research to figure out how to get your friend off the hook? Or what is it that these mysterious captors who put you in a room with not enough air actually want from you? Is this some sort of test or are you supposed to break out? And then last thing, think about what time, where in the timeline you want to uh, play your game. There's original series, which is Cold War with Klingons and Romulans. It's kind of like the Wild West in space. Or Next Generation, the Klingons are kind of allies. You're facing galactic threats like the Borg and the Dominion. There are huge leaps in technology. And they're the beginnings of a fracturing of those Federation principles. This is when Section 31 sort of really begins to raise its head. Or you could play in the Enterprise era. There's no Federation. Humanity is on its own with only Vulcans as reluctant allies. It's low-tech, militarily focused. Humans have no standing in a splintered galaxy. There's the Abramsverse, which you know, Shane. Um, is an, al- an alternate universe. You kick in the door and you shoot a lot of things. I'm In space. I reject that uh, description of the Abramsverse. <laughs> Do you, though? No, the, the Abrams verse is invariably where you take something beloved and then just wreck it. Oh, also true. Very true. And then there's the mirror universe where humans are the bad guys. Everything is turned on its head. This is good for short interludes. I probably wouldn't recommend an entire campaign in the mirror universe because, I don't know, it's like having an entire campaign in like Lord of the Rings orc society. It's just going to fall apart. It's that uh, Rats Kurt. Wait, I don't know what Rats Kurt is. Star Trek Backwards. Oh, okay. I thought you were doing like a Kurtzman thing who <laughs> some people think kind of ruined it, but whatever. Okay. Uh, what systems are available to play Star Trek? Okay, so the most current one, and I think probably the best one, is Star Trek Adventures from Modiphius. It uses their proprietary 2D20 system, which is basically you're rolling against a combination of your attributes as like a, a person. And then the skills that you have based on your job or, or your position. So, you, you know, you'll roll, uh, I guess, like uh, presence plus con, depending on the like type of, like, sorry, con, like con control system, which is help, like piloting and computers, not constitution. Okay. <laughs> sorry. Nerd. Yeah. You're not wrong. Uh, uh, to, fig- there- to figure out how successful you are at a, at a given task. Got it. Uh, and then, of course, there are about a dozen other systems uh, over the years. Uh, I think the notable ones is there's the the FASA version from like the early 80s, like 1982, and then a D20 modern called Prime Directive. I think that one is the only one that System Mastery has reviewed, and it was quite bad. Uh-huh. <laughs> Go figure. <laughs> if it ends up on System Mastery, you know it's not good. <laughs> But Star Trek works with pretty much any sci-fi or hard sci system. So you can take any Star Wars system and pretty easily adapt it. Like they've got all the tons of races. They've got ships and things. You know, you just change the tone of it. Yeah. Or like, you know, something like Eclipse Phase and make it less creepy. Uh, A little less creepy. That's too much work. <laughs> all right. So in conclusion, I think we know my answer. What I play in Star Trek, of course, I play in star trek but shane would you play a star trek game uh star trek has too much baggage for me um not not in the like in the sense of like moral or cultural baggage you know like not that it's problematic 
Um, just that like the people that I would play with that, that I would sit down to play Star Trek with would love Star Trek and would be very unhappy with me. <laughs> so like <laughs> that would be a challenge for me as a person to play. It's a bit like uh, you and I sitting down to play with someone who loves Forgotten Realms. Or Lord of the Rings. You're right. You're right. I like Lord of the Rings a lot, but I have no problem lampooning it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, I think it's interesting. Like, I, I actually would enjoy playing it, I'm sure. I just, uh, yeah, it's it's the concern for the other players at the table and, and mostly me disappointing them that keeps me from really considering it. Hmm. And I, I will say this, actually, the only use I really have for Abramsverse is I would play an RPG set in Abramsverse because it's a lot of the things that you want to do in a game anyway, which is kick indoors and shoot phasers. Yeah, but then it's too generic. I can do that in any setting. Why oh. do I need his setting? Oh, but I love the trappings just okay. in general, right? <laughs> All right. <laughs> All right. Do you hear that, Ishan? I've set phasers to stunning. Okay. Well, <laughs> let's move on to the character creation forge. And before we do that, let's talk about how our listeners can get in contact with us. We do love hearing from you. You can tweet at Shane at Mundangerous. That's M-U-N Dangerous. And you can tweet at Ishan at Evil Sans Carne. That's Malice minus Meat. And you can tweet at the show at TPTCast. You can also email us at TotalPartyThrill at gmail.com. And you can find us on the web at www.TotalPartyThrill.com. We're also on Facebook and Instagram at TotalPartyThrill. And join the conversation on Discord. There's a link in the show notes. Hey, Shane, new sponsor. What? Yeah. Who, Who did we con into giving us money this month? <laughs> Do you mean con like piloting and computers or con yep, like constitution? <laughs> okay. <laughs> Look, Total Party Thrill this week is brought to you by Fish in the Pot and the One Page Dungeon Collection. Yeah, this is cool. So uh, a bunch of gamers backed the Fish in the Pot One Page Dungeon Collection on Kickstarter and it raised like 2,000% of its funding goal. But it is now publicly available and for a limited time you can pick it up for 25% off the cover price at fishinthepot.itch.io. 2,000% is one of those numbers where you look at it and you're like, oh, you threw that percent on the end and now that throws off like my understanding of how much that is. It's like when people talk about Zimbabwean dollars. It's 20 times, Ishan, 20 <laughs> times the goal. <laughs> it's. I think it's 1 trillion percent. I don't know. <laughs> okay, in, so, in, in either case, both, both are impressive. And obviously, like... 20 times more people know what's in one page dungeon collection than uh, than expected or than required to create it. But for the listeners, Ishan, can you tell us what's in there? Of course. So it features 15 short dungeons that are quick to read, simple to prep, and fun to play. The dungeons are full of character and fully compatible with the fifth edition of what some might call the world's most popular fantasy role-playing game. Those are people who understand math, yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> So that sounds interesting. Pick up your copy at fishinthepot.itch.io. So this week in the Character Creation Forge, we're building Section 31, or I guess I should say a Section 31 operative. Uh-huh. So what is a Section 31 operative? They have gone deep undercover, and they are working to advance Federation goals by any means necessary, at least according to them. Other people might think they're just a mole who is undermining the morals and principles of the Federation. But you do underhanded things and try not to get caught, uh, although you're not typically working either against the party or against the people that you are embedded with. You just have slightly different goals or are trying to achieve the same goals through different methods. 
kind of parallel goals, huh? Yeah, exactly. You're not uh, you're not the traitor to the party. Right. Yeah, no, like I'm going down in this dungeon because uh oh yeah, no, we can kill the lich, but I just like I need this one artifact that's down there. Right, so that we can kill much bigger liches. Right. right? Exactly. I know you're here to destroy the whole like uh Temple of Elemental Evil. I get it. I just want to save a little bit of Elemental Evil so we can weaponize it. Yeah, cuz liches get stitches. Yeah. Come on. Also right. stitch uh, we built that. That's genetic engineering. <laughs> yeah, but we did not build Lilo. Lilo? It's been a long time. <laughs> I know. All right, what's the build? It is Mastermind Rogue 17, Artillerist Artificer 3. I'm going to give a shout out to Snark Knight on the Discord for um, not building it, but for the inspiration. All right, so from Rogue, we'll get 96 sneak attack. That's possibly the most sneak attack we've ever had in a build. I think so. And then you get all the things to keep yourself from getting caught. Evasion, uncanny dodge, cunning action, blind sense, slippery mind. You also get four expertises and reliable talent, which also prevent you from getting caught because, of course, you're taking expertise in deception. Right. Uh, You'll get disguise, forgery, mimic speech from your mastermind. You'll be able to take the measure of your opponent just by watching them for a while. That's a thing you're going to be doing a lot of, walking down corridors and just figuring out who is the biggest threat or maybe even on a diplomatic mission, like sizing up the person that you're going to be assassinating. And also, I think this is the first time we've actually had a mastermind with the misdirection ability that you get at level 13 because I think in a review, we hated it. It's if someone is providing you cover then as a reaction, you can have them take the hit for you. Uh-huh. But you're section 31. You're fine with that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you're like, someone's always giving me cover. Come on. Come on. <laughs> tactics. And then at 17, what we're here for is soul of deceit. So it lets you present false information, and then magic cannot discern your lies. Handy if you're a permanently undercover operative. Right, especially if you're actually playing a D&D game where there's a lot of magic to tell if you're lying. <laughs> Uh, and then from Artificer, we will get Magical Tinkering, which lets you uh, create little magic devices. Great way to encode secret messages. You get a bunch of tool proficiencies. Talk to your GM about which ones are going to be the most useful for actually being in a Star Trek game. Um, you know, you can pick basically whatever you want. And then you can conjure any artisan's tools that you'll want. You'll get four known infusions and two items that you can infuse. Probably you'll want to look at enhanced gear. Also look at sending stones because you could then privately communicate uh, with other people in section 31 without tipping off anybody else. You get the shield spell and then your Eldritch Cannon. Uh, People always talk about it being on spider legs and walking around and you can do that, but you can also make it tiny and the text specifically says that means it is handheld. So it's a phaser? It's definitely a phaser and you can choose force ballistae, flamethrower, which I think will probably come up in some sort of Mandalorian build one of these days. Uh Uh-huh. But when you're mostly undercover, most of the time, I think you're probably making the protector version, which is like a personal shield. You're just giving yourself a bunch of temp HP. That's what I would be doing all day is just making sure I always have, you know, whatever, 13 temp HP just in my back pocket. Right. So what are we thinking in terms of leveling order? I think I would go ahead and just start off Artificer 3 and get your... uh, bonus action attack and then rogue straight through and definitely end on rogue so that you can uh, get a nice capstone with soul of deceit so ishan who is your section 31 operative so shane 
It is February, which means it is, of course, Feberon. And so... Okay. (laughs) My Section 31 officer is actually an operative of the Trust. Oh, the Trust of Zalargo. Indeed, which which is basically, honestly, the Section 31 of Zalargo. Like, they're a secret organization that basically polices everyone's activities, carries out political assassinations, bribes people, but does it for the good of the country. And people who find out about it are typically like, oh, I'm glad you're keeping the peace. That's that's a good thing, and I won't spill the beans. And also, if I did, you'd murder me, so I won't. Right. Uh, so, yes, a trust operative, and I think um, she definitely got recruited as a youngster, showed an aptitude for magical tinkering, um, probably developed her own Eldritch Cannon um, design, you know, handheld, quiet, surreptitious, and definitely attracted the attention of a higher-up uh, rogue in the trust and said, well, well, didn't really give her an option. Maybe, maybe made it seem like joining the Academy was an option. Was basically like, hey... Yeah, um, you're going to be working with us now. You're on a special track. And here she is. And even when embedded with a party, which she certainly may be, because the, the trust doesn't have evil motives, right? They're just trying to keep Zalargo safe, and saving the world keeps Zalargo safe. Right. Uh, she is still reporting back to the trust, probably using her sending stones. What about your Section 31 operative? So you found the better faction. <laughs> uh, I was thinking of a King's Dark Lantern. I I still like them. They're they're brellish, right? Yeah. So that's Breland's special, like I don't know, intelligence agency. Basically, it's um, like Renaz- uh whatever. It's a medieval MI six. Yeah, it's the uh, the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um. So I was in the same. Uh, the same vein there uh, with Feberon as well. Uh, I guess mine is probably undercover in the Lazar Principalities and is now a pirate captain. And no one is quite sure if he's gone rogue or if he's still a loyal Dark Lantern. Right. He's like, uh, haven't you heard of a privateer? Come on. Yeah. Like, how many <laughs> ships do you have to take as a privateer on that commission before someone starts wondering if you're doing it for the fun of it? You know? <laughs> I mean, there's always just plausible deniability, right? Uh, You've been a pirate for like a decade. Yeah, I know. I'm really good at being a privateer, right? Yeah, the war ended three years ago, though. Did it? It's hard hard to get pigeons out here. Yeah. (laughs) New sending stone. Who dis? (laughs) Also, I don't believe you. Right. This sounds like a Carnathy ploy. Oh, yeah, sure. The war ended. Oh, give me my cargo. (laughs) Wait, you're telling me all of Syria was destroyed? Uh Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah, sure. All right. Before we wrap up, we want to take a moment and thank our Patreon supporters. Your support is what makes it possible for us to keep doing this show every single week. So if you'd like to learn more, you can check out our rewards at patreon.com slash totalpartythrill. One of those rewards uh, is creeping up. Yeah, we are getting dangerously close to uh, doing a campaign setting episode just like this one about the Forgotten Realms. About Uh, the what? uh, I can't um, remember. No, it's, it's gone. Sorry. But the uh, yeah the the Discord has really been stepping up a lot. Uh, <laughs> like they are really trying to push this through, and I you know bless their hearts for it. But we're we're getting flirtatiously close to uh, to doing a Forgotten Realms episode. I think we should save room for the Holy Spirit, honestly. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. <laughs> 
All right. What do we have planned for next week's episode? We're going to be talking about stealing from Forged in the Dark games. And in the character creation forge? We're building the Night Fox. Well, that's it for episode 237 of Total Party Thrill. I hope we lived up to our name, but either way, I'm Shane. And I'm Ishan. Thanks for listening. Total Party Thrill is also brought to you this week by Hero Forge. In just one week, the Kickstarter for Hero Forge Color is going to end, so get in on it right now. Yeah, you know the drill. Fully customized, 3D printed, in-color miniatures. It's the missing step. You no longer have to paint. They just print it in the color you want. You design it online. They send it to your door. It was the only thing preventing me from spending all of my money on customized miniatures, because I hate to paint. Yeah, rip your retirement. (laughs) So you have two options. The material can be printed right in the plastic, or... You can design it, you can use a color picker to see what it's going to look like, and then they'll send it out to somebody else to paint it before sending it to you. Yep, and then within their color design tool, they have some pre-designed palettes of colors and like things like furs and skins and metal. Um, they can simulate dry brushing and washing and inking and custom color mixing. Um, and then you can also create tokens for your virtual tabletop based on the miniature that you've designed in Hero Forge. So you've got about a week to uh, be a Kickstarter backer. And then in June, they will finally open the order submissions for uh, all the types of color minis. So check that out over at Kickstarter uh, or at HeroForge.com.